Hello, I'm Lucas. And I am Nicholas. And this is our show, We Chef, where we discuss the reality of working a small business. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to We Chef. Uh, it is uh, Thursday mo- Wednesday morning, sorry. And uh, but today is very uh, special day for us because we have our guest, Dennis Kelly. Dennis Kelly and I have worked at the French Laundry for several years. And Dennis now is the owner of a famous restaurant in Palo Alto called Protégé. As one star Michelin, and uh, he's also uh, become a master sommelier. And we are very excited to have him uh, in a podcast and talk about his journey into the restaurant and the wine world. So, Denis, welcome. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here, Nicola. You were certainly incredibly supportive for me um, during an important part of my career. I was uh, going from a guy who really didn't know anything about wine to a guy who was very interested in wine and <laughs> in the process of studying. And uh, you kind of gave me my first big break when you uh, elevated me from captain at the French Laundry uh, to head sommelier. And uh, people hardly believe the story when I tell them, hey, I was a captain, started studying wine. And literally three years later, you know, Nicola gave me a promotion and made me the head sommelier at the French Laundry. I was never even a sommelier. I, I never worked as a floor som at any restaurant. So the learning curve was steep. Uh, I basically, <laughs> you know, uh, said to the seller som at the time, hey, I need you to mentor me and coach me on your position. And then I just worked my way up through the team. And then I looked at the entire scope and decided what I wanted to do and what I thought I was best suited to do and how I could facilitate the rest of the responsibilities through the rest of the team. And uh, I'm sure I fell down many times, but you always picked me up and, uh, you know, I made it. <laughs> so, great. Well, what a really quick for people who don't really understand, because everybody knows that maybe they know the, the, the title sommelier, but they don't really know exactly what you know, the, the importance or the significance of being a Somme. So if you could explain that a little bit, just especially in a, in a restaurant like the French Laundry or like Protégé, where it's more um, necessary to have somebody like that on the floor. Well, sommelier, and uh, Nicola can correct me, but uh, my understanding is it's the French term for the wine steward. And um, so we are in charge of buying and managing, cellaring and selling the wine. And so, um, you know, at the French Laundry, it was a very unique beast because I had a five-person team. And, uh, you know, I'm the sommelier of protege, but I manage the entire program myself. So it's just a matter of scale. You know, at the French Laundry, we had 15,000 bottles and I have, you know, just over 2,000 bottles. So it's a lot easier to manage as a single person. But that that's basically my responsibility is to buy wine that I think complements the cuisine and, you know, help each guest get the right bottle or glass or in our case, half bottle for, you know, for their meal. Sure. Yeah. I I always, my, my philosophy is that the wine should support the food without overpowering it. So I always try to lean on elegance more than power. I want a wine that's going to support and and you know maybe cleanse your palate making you want another sip of wine or another bite of food which is going to make you want another sip of wine and it creates a symbiotic relationship where the food and the wine are better together and that's really my goal i'm not trying to provide this impressive wine that's going to overshadow everything um you know so that that's my philosophy in terms of what i bring to the dining room floor yeah yeah well it's interesting because um you know, if you go to a restaurant, like come to our restaurant where, so talk about French Laundry, you managed 15,000 bottles, Protégé 2,000 bottles, and then us, we're at 100 bottles, right? And so, and for us, and like 100 bottles, and I manage and do that whole thing, and I'm definitely not um, a sommelier or skilled in that learning slowly, right? Uh, like you were in uh, at the French Laundry. If you're the one that's buying the wine, taking care of it, and and being the liaison between the wine and the guests, you are the sommelier. You may not have passed a test yet, but it's a role, you know, yeah. it's, it's, it's a position. And so right. you are the sommelier. Give yourself some credit. So <laughs> then I am the sommelier, but, right. <laughs> uh, but it's super, it's interesting even to manage, you know, the, that, that 
inventory and to look at, you know, what wines we buy that we feel complements a fried chicken sandwich, for example, and, and things like that, where we're, you know, we're, and um, it's cool to, to make that connection. And when you see people, when it all works and it all comes together, it's definitely very, um, rewarding, very, right? Yeah, super rewarding. It's very cool to experience for sure. Yeah. And, and there's a beauty, a, a simplicity that I think is very noble in a smaller list like that, because, every, and I've, I learned this just having, you know, scaled our list back as far as we did relative to the French laundry is that every single selection that you make, every wine that you purchase and store is more important. You know, you have to give so much more thought to every single wine. Mm-hmm. I, I felt like, and I never had this mentality, but you inherit a, a wine list at, at, you know, a restaurant like French Laundry that many, many sommeliers have helped, you know, put together over the years. It's a collection of the buying decisions of many, many people. Whereas you and me right now, we're the only people responsible for that wine. And sometimes, you know, you look at everyone in a way like a child and it's, and and you're very proud of it. And if, when you inherit somebody else's list, inevitably there's going to be decisions that were made that you don't necessarily support. And and it's an awkward position because you're like, well, I really would like to not see this wine on the list, but then again, I don't necessarily feel super confident in recommending it, you know? So it's an awkward position. It's, it's a real uh, blessing in a way to, to have the autonomy that you have and not have to be selling something that you don't necessarily believe a hundred percent in. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. At the same time, everything is subjective. So it might not be beautiful to you, but to somebody else it obviously was very beautiful. So it's not like you're selling something to a guest that they're not going to enjoy. It just may not be your preferred style, you know? Yeah, yeah. So, um, I mean, if you want to ask me, well, um, if you want to tell us a little bit about um, your journey at Protege and um, also yeah. like how you how did you go through COVID? Because we we don't really speak to many people throughout this time. You know, everybody was kind of his, in his own world trying to make it, and now we discovering what people did to survive. Yeah, so. So Protégé obviously was, uh, you know, Anthony, and my, my business partner is Anthony Secviar. He was a sous chef at the French Laundry, and um, I had a lot of respect for him. I think we had a, a mutual respect in that we were both, um, you know, Midwestern boys, kind of came from unassuming backgrounds, but we are both really passionate about food, wine, and hospitality, and um, we're willing to grind and and make it happen, you know. And so I think we appreciated that about each other. We decided to partner and open uh, what we wanted to be an upscale neighborhood restaurant. We felt like uh, we, we we chose Palo Alto largely. Initially, we, we didn't want to be in Napa. We didn't, certainly didn't want to be competing with somebody like Chef Keller or, you know, Richard Reddington. There was so much talent in that area, and we didn't necessarily feel like they needed another upscale neighborhood restaurant, but we looked at the Silicon Valley and that was an area that we felt there was a, a considerable need. Um, back in the 1990s, um, they opened, uh, Jeremiah Trower opened Stars, second location. Stars was incredibly popular and successful in San Francisco. He opened a second location in Palo Alto and it, and it failed within a couple of years. And so Wolfgang Puck moved into that same spot with a Spago and you know obviously they've been crushing it in beverly hills since 1982 and uh they didn't even make it a decade and so conventional wisdom was that palo alto or i should say silicon valley wouldn't support uh ambitious dining and so restaurant tours avoided the area when in fact when i told chef keller that anthony and i were going to open there he was like i don't know if that's a good idea to go to palo alto you know you he gave me some other recommendations and said you know you really need to think about that but we felt that things had changed you know um people were starting to travel they were going to great cities like london tokyo you know singapore for for business and coming back and kind of realizing that they didn't really have a lot of dining options that were inspiring 
about that time, there were some other places that opened um, as well. And, you know, Bird Dog comes to mind and, and we could see that they were succeeding. So we knew that the market was was ripe. Um, but we we found a space and opened, uh, it took us 11 months to get building permits, which was really frustrating. Um, city was very challenging. There were some residents that um, appealed. Um, basically, the day we applied for business, uh, for building permits, they said, hey, to the city, they emailed and said, if you guys give these guys permits, um, we're going to appeal. So they dragged us through the mud for 11 months over zoning uh, issues. And ultimately, we went to, they when they finally gave us the permits, they said the bad news is it took 11 months. The good news is we don't anticipate any uh, appeals. Um <laughs> Gee. Of course, nine days into a 15-day appeal period, they appeal anyway. Right. I make a little meeting with them at a coffee shop down the street, and I'm like, our architect assures us we're compliant. The city believes we're compliant. Why don't you think we're compliant? And they said, we'll see at the hearing. They they wouldn't help us try to... Who was know, that? It was an organization called Palo Altans for Sensible Zoning. And it's just an anti-growth organization. <laughs> We have that in Maribu too. Yeah. So ultimately, we um, go to an architectural review board hearing, which we win nine to nothing. And um, we win the city council hearing seven to two because there were two people whose candidacies were funded by this organization. So we knew we were down two to nothing, just doing some research online. And sure enough, we win seven to two. Anyway, we opened, we finally opened in March of 2018. Um, thankfully, we received the Michelin star in November of that year. So around September, people started going, hey, you know, Michelin's coming out soon. Do you guys think you'll get a star? And we were like, are you kidding? We're just trying to keep our heads above water right now. We're just trying to keep this restaurant staffed. We're not thinking about Michelin right now. We're like, I hope, you know, I almost don't want them to come and see that I'm understaffed today, you know, whatever it was. Um, so it was a really, really challenging time, as you know. It's It's just... When you're opening, there's just so many unforeseen challenges. No matter how much you you plan and and you think you have it planned perfectly, it's never perfect. You know, you, there's so much to learn as you're going along. You have to be flexible and you have to pivot. But thankfully, um, we did get rated and we we received a Michelin star in November of our first year, 2018. And then we we kind of built on that. 2019 was our best year financially and we were feeling good about ourselves and of course march of 2020 the pandemic and um, they shut everything down as you know and um, we we did outdoor dining as soon as we were it was allowable um kitchen started doing takeout which is not something that we really felt we were well suited for so again they kept you know they were flexible and they were changing the menu and actually creating takeout menu specifically with with takeout in mind mm -hmm. and um, we had some really really loyal guests that came every week and we're like well, we just want to make sure you guys are here when you know this thing is over yeah. and thanks to them we made it and we were able to retain our kitchen team unfortunately we had to lay off our dining room team twice the second time on december 6th of 2020 in the midst of the holiday season and we lost a lot of key you know opening team members and that was really really you know impactful and we really struggled for you know two three years to get restaffed and we finally fully uh we finally are fully staffed as we shut down our patio for the year in october this year that's when it gave us the resources to be fully staffed indoors and uh feels good I'm, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. As an as a you know as an owner, you you just feel so um, you almost feel guilty when you're understaffed because it just puts additional pressure on the team, right? And then and then you have to start accepting compromises. Well, I know you took this shortcut, but it's you know you start looking in the mirror, going, well, but I know that you don't have the back waiter that you should, or you're sharing a back waiter with the other captain when you should have a dedicated back waiter, that type of thing. So suddenly you're accepting compromises that 
you don't want for the restaurant or for the guest, you know, but it's out of necessity. What we did was we just shut sections down. There was a point where, you know, we opened up our dining room fully as soon as we could, but the lounge, we, we literally had half of it shut. We just didn't have the, a, a captain and a back server to, to work it. And we didn't want to spread ourselves through too thin. Cause one, we don't want to disappoint guests underperform and two, it puts pressure on the team, you know, and then at the end of the night, you're not happy with the, the result of the service and it's, it's not worth it. So we're trying to think long-term if we didn't have the staff, we would literally just keep a section closed. And frankly, it's embarrassing. Sometimes you're like, you know, people are coming in going, well, can I sit there? And it's like, mm, that section's closed. Yeah. And it's hard it's to say no. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but you just don't have the staff. And if you seat it, then you're going to compromise the, the service on the remainder of the, the restaurant. Yeah. Did you do any uh, changes to your um, hours of operation because of COVID? Following COVID? We did start closing earlier. Yeah. So initially we were closing at, you know, pre-pandemic, we were closing at 9.30 on weekdays and 10 o'clock on Friday and Saturday. And we're closed on Sunday and Monday. When we reopened, we were only open till nine, five days a week. Uh, we've now pushed it to 9.30, but we still have never gone back to the, the 10 o'clock closure. What about lunch? We never did lunch. We, we initially envisioned doing lunch you know the concept was really inspired by Gramercy Tavern in New York City and they have a tavern that is very neighborhood driven it's open for lunch and dinner and then they open up their dining room for dinner where they do five I believe five or seven course prefix and, and we thought that was a, a really great concept it allowed you to be an upscale neighborhood restaurant but it still allowed you to do some fine dining and work with some products you wouldn't be able to work with otherwise um so the plan initially was to do lunch and what we didn't realize is to open at five o'clock our kitchen was going to get there at five o'clock in the morning and do 12 hours of prep yeah. and we don't you know yeah. unlike the french laundry we just don't have the the resources to have a team preparing for service and another team executing service you yeah. know yeah, yeah. So. We 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 just switched for the winter. This is the first time we've done this, but we closed on the weekdays. We closed for lunch and we just do dinner service. And then the weekends were open breakfast, lunch and dinner. Uh, it's a huge, huge operation. Breakfast, lunch and dinner. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> wow. No, no, uh, we are in a location. Malibu is a very challenging place. You know? Yeah. We talk a lot about you sometimes uh, with Protégé. And uh, when I came to visit, you told me the story about that Palo Alto was not ready for a long time, you know. And uh, mm -hmm. sometimes we look at Malibu, you know, Malibu doesn't have any food scene, doesn't have anybody who comes to eat good food. You know, it's, uh, yeah. we, we, we pride ourselves to try to do the best we can and to try to get the right thing down. But mm -hmm. it's not a, a location where you come to eat, you know. Yeah. We, we are located a mile south of Nobu and Nobu has this fancy, incredible restaurant mm -hmm. of people all the time. Yeah. It's not for the, not for the dining reason, more for the visiting. Mali no, that, isn't that more about tourists at Nobu? Or is you guys a neighborhood restaurant? Yeah. 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 You come in on Saturday night, everybody knows everybody. Know everybody's name. Yeah. yeah. Which, Which is, is really great. fun. And it is fun. Yeah. It yeah. Is fun. Last last Sunday we did an event for uh, some somebody in the uh, one of the neighbors and uh, we did an event for them and we really we really felt like we were a part of I mean like we are a part of the family like mm -hmm. they come to us like they yeah, know yeah. everybody they, from the dishwasher to the uh, to myself they everybody knows everyone everybody's friendly you know it's, it's yeah it's, it's, it's something to be a part of a community like that it's like you don't realize the impact you know I mean especially like. You're having a really bad day, you know, something's going on. I mean, we work together, right? We're partners together. And um, he's also my dad. So, you know, <laughs> that. and uh, you you do those days sometimes where it's just not, it's just not clicking. Yeah. And uh, then you have people come in and, you know, they, they, you know, embrace you and they tell you about how great of a job you're doing and how amazing your team is. And you're like, you know, yeah. it's not that bad. 
we're doing okay. Incredible yeah. for you though to have uh, you know a father with that kind of pedigree and and resume. Yeah, you know, definitely great restaurants that he brings you know yeah. experience from to you on a daily basis and and to your guests you know yeah pretty special. It's uh yeah I don't think I fully understood it until we started working together and then I started it really kind of made sense and um, yeah. It's true. You were so young at that time. So like you were going to the, the events, the Christmas events, the open houses and everything, but you wouldn't really know what to compare it to. I mean, that was like Disneyland in a way. It's so rare, you know, when I start, when we opened, I got a message from a friend in Canada who was working as a, as a cook in a restaurant in an upscale restaurant in, in Vancouver and he uh, messaged me and he said, you know, your dad's the shit. And I said, what do you mean? <laughs> Anybody here knows who your dad is, you know, it must have been, must have been maybe the owner or something knew him from French Laundry. And so, but he, uh, yeah, he sent me that and I kind of like put it all together for me, you know, and I realized yeah. what impact he, made, he has made on the, you know, on this industry. And Black Fan was an icon too. Yeah. You know, you talk to anybody, you know my age or you know probably in at least in their 30s about Lebec Venn in Philadelphia and everyone's like I mean that was the place yeah, you know that was the place major sure. city that was the place yeah yeah so tell us a little bit about your uh, do you use your master sommelier title or do you in your job now in your uh, in your world now do you I mean I've never um you know I've never worn my pin during service um you know a lot of people comment about it and I just tell them the truth like I passed the test that that's what it means you know it was for me um I mean it just kind of happened organically I when when I took my intro, I had barely, I didn't really even know what a sommelier was. I, I met a sommelier when I was uh, working as a floor manager at Martini House, and it was a new term to me. I had heard my brother use the term, and I didn't really know what it was, and suddenly I was in, introduced to a gentleman named Bob Bath. He's a master sommelier, and I'm like, hey, what's this master sommelier thing? And he starts talking to me about it, and he says, hey, you know, we have a course at Trevenia. I don't know, in a couple of weeks, it's sold out. But if you're interested, I'll, I'll see if I can get you in. And I, I was like, well, I can't pass up <laughs> that opportunity. Well, he yeah. didn't tell me it was also the intro exam. So I gave this course, you know, a day and a half in, all of a sudden they start passing out an exam. And I don't even really know what I'm taking. That's how ignorant I am. And it turned out it was my, my uh, intro examination, my introductory examination for the quartermaster sommeliers. This was in I think 2004, late 2004. And, uh, and so then we're waiting for the results and I'm hearing all these people talk about, well, you, you know, would you put for this question? Would you put for that question? And I was, I was just hundred percent sure that I, I had failed. I was literally just reading wine for dummies at home at that time, you know? Mm-hmm. And, um, and I still swear by that book. I think it's a great book, but that was the only wine study, formal wine study that I had was sitting at my kitchen table reading wine for dummies. And somehow I passed. And and so then I, I was like, oh my gosh, this is, you know, really exciting. I got in a tasting group. Um, Samoyen, yeah. French Laundry, Michael Scafidi helped me find a, a tasting group. I got in a tasting group at, um, I guess it was Patson Hall. And um, then that was a real eye-opener these people are describing these wines i'm smelling them i'm like i don't get any of that i don't know what you guys are talking about uh, i'm sorry every week you used to do that right yeah i used to do that every week and 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 they were just i hate to say it i think they were itching to kick me out because i didn't know what i was doing but i i just i learned that grid that's kind of what they used they were like hey you better learn memorize this grid you know and so I memorized that grid. I'd be in the shower going, okay, sight, uh, clarity, color, comfort, you know. And and so I just memorized that grid. And so they they couldn't, they wouldn't really kick me out because they felt like I was putting in the work. They're like, well, he knows the grid and, you know, his descriptions might be very limited, but at least he's not just making stuff up. He's only telling us what he finds in the glass. And so I, I just hung in there enough until I finally started to get a handle on it. 
And then um, I was actually, I decided I'm going to, I, I was so inspired by the two masters that were proctoring the course that I was like, that's what I want to be when I grow up. I was 39 at the time though. And, um, but, but I started reading, I got the wine Bible from Karen McNeil and I was starting to, you know, digest lots of reading material. And so, um, then I, I said, I'm going to prepare for the advanced some examination. And then they created the certified examination because back then they didn't have a certified. So you went from intro to cert to advanced. So I, it was a big hill to climb. And they said, hey, we're going to do this certified examination. Because of when I passed the intro, I didn't have to take the certified. But I was like, I'm going to take that as practice for the advanced. So I guess in 04, I passed the intro, 05, I passed the certified, and 06, I did pass the advanced in my in my first uh, my first attempt out at Disneyland, hearing it's a small world till I, I, I literally was, you know, nauseous from stress. And then um, I, I, you know, thanks to your father, I, I actually, like I said, in 2008, while I was preparing for the master level, I had this opportunity um, to, to take over the wine program at the French Laundry. And I was in over my head, as I said. So I, I wasn't going to tasting group. I wasn't studying for a while. And a lot of people just thought I dropped out of the program, that I just, I thought I made it and I'm done. And I, and I, and now I was just trying to keep my job, you know, I was trying to keep my head above water. So I seriously did not have the time or the bandwidth to prepare for the MS. I, again, I wasn't even thinking about it. And then in January of 2010, I, I felt like I finally, you know, after two years, I, I felt like I finally got my footing and I could start to dabble in studying. So I said, I'll commit to 15 minutes a day. And the examination was going to be in Las Vegas in, um, in September of that year of 2010. So I said, I've got nine months, I'm going to study 15 minutes a day, and I'll see where I'm at. And I ended up taking it, I got theory and service and I missed tasting. So I went back um, in May of 2012. I went to Aspen, everyone's like, all you have is tasting, don't go to Aspen, the high elevation will mess you up, the wines won't, you know, won't taste the same. And the only thing I noticed is that at, at that elevation, everything seemed to have misty bubbles. And misty bubbles can be um, a little bit of a clue with whites that are bottled early. So things like Riesling, Gruner Veltliner, Albarino, sometimes they still have CO2 in solution. Often they're under screw cap and they will still have a little, uh, you know, sparkling, uh, some small bubbles in the glass and everything had small bubbles in the glass in Aspen. So I just kind of had to, you know, rely more on color and things of that nature to replace the information that I could have gathered through misty bubbles. But yeah, thankfully I passed uh, in 2012 and, and I was done. How many wine did you test? I mean, what was you it? Six wines. Is that what you mean for the examination? Yeah, yeah. So there are six wines, three whites, and three reds, and you have 25 minutes, which is four minutes and 10 seconds per wine, and you have a grid, as I alluded to earlier, that you have memorized. It includes a visual assessment, an aromatic assessment, so sight and nose, as we call it, and then uh, a palate assessment, and then you give them an initial conclusion where you can kind of hedge your bets if you're you know, at that fork in the road, and then you have to give them a final conclusion. Wow. So, yeah. And I'm I'm what I call a very methodical taster. There are some people that I, I call intuitive tasters. They just, they have this incredible memory and they just pick things up and they just, they just remember, you know, if you remember Jared Heber, he was a very intuitive taster. He would pick up a glass and, and he would just know what it was, you know, we'd be in tasting group and he would be, he didn't bring the particular wine, but somebody would get it wrong and he would be telling them why they got it wrong. And we're like, Jared, you don't even know what the wine is yet, but he knew what the wine was, you know, we're like, Jared, how do you know this is Gruner Veltliner? And he would say, makeup oil. Like you ever kiss 
your mom in the cheek and you can kind of smell that makeup oil. And I was like, yeah. And he's like, that's Gruner Veltliner. <laughs> wow. That's, yeah, that's, that's an intuitive taster, you know. Uh, Jason Heller, who was the head psalm at Bouchon for a while, he, you know, he would get a Chateauneuf to pop and everyone else in the room would be calling it Russian River Pinot or whatever. And we'd be like, how'd you know, how were you the only one that knew it was Chateauneuf to pop? And he would go, red licorice, uh, red licorice whips, you know, those Swizzlers. And I'm like, yeah, he's like, yeah, Chateauneuf to pop, you know. So that's the intuitive taster. Uh, my approach is I'm very methodical. I've, I've worked on uh, assessing structure accurately. So that is the acid level, tannin level, and alcohol level in wine. Um, and then I learned to detect impact aromatics. These are aromatic compounds often found in nature that are you know, in specific grapes. For example, Bordeaux has pyrazine, right? Pyrazine is the aromatic compound that makes a green pepper smell the way it does. So Sauvignon Blanc and Cab Franc, which are the parents of Cabernet Sauvignon, all have pyrazine. They have that green peppery quality, right? Malbec, uh, Merlot, Carmenere, they all have it in various levels. Now, as the sugars go up, the pyrazines go down. So in Napa, where the fruit can get hyper ripe, the pyrazine levels come down. But if you go to the Loire Valley and you, you know, take a Cabernet Franc from that area where it's much cooler, you can really get a clear picture of, of pyrazine, you know, certainly in Bordeaux, you get it in various levels at the higher end, you know, your first growths, they're getting pretty ripe because they're reducing yields in the vineyards. So they get a fair amount of ripeness to where much like California, those pyrazine levels come down. Um, but if you can detect pyrazine, you know, there's a family of grapes that have it. It's the Bordeaux grape varieties and, you know, Rotundone, which you find in things like Syrah, Grenache, Gruner Veltliner, they give wines that herbal spicy quality, the pepper, white pepper and Gruner, black pepper and Syrah, white pepper and Grenache. It's that type of thing. So if you can assess the structure accurately, you can pick up the impact aromatics, oak, uh, stem inclusion, botrytis, malolactic fermentation, monoterpene and overtly floral grapes. It's it's this type of compound. And, and if you know the profile that each grape has, you know what its structure should be, you know which impact, imp, uh, impact aromatics they have, it just becomes a process of elimination. And that's how I taste blind anyway. <laughs> that's a lot, actually. <laughs> are, you, uh, are, you, are you involved with the Master of Sommelier in any... I do proctor exams when I can. I mean, obviously, um, you know, I when I was coming up, you know, one of the benefits to being at a restaurant or being the head sommelier at, at a restaurant like the French Laundry is that people are willing to help you. You know, they 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 want the association. So I, in a way, I guess in hindsight, I I. I use that in a way I would reach out to master sommeliers and say, Hey, you know, would you be willing to work with me on tasting? Because that was my, you know, I felt like theory, you just got to put your time in, you got to be consistent, you got to do your reading, you got to be organized in your studies. But I felt like, and service, well, we were doing three star Michelin service every night at, at the French laundry. So that I, I felt, you know, in a way uniquely prepared for, but tasting was the thing that I really needed to focus on. And so I would ask masters if they would help me. And, and if their approach resonated with me, then I would try to continue with them. And if it, it was just a different approach, then I didn't want to waste their time. Um, but uh, boy, I lost my train of thought. What, what was your question? I'm sorry. If you are involved with the master sommelier. Oh, am I involved? Yes. So, so thank you for that. Uh, so I would say to them, hey, is there anything I can do to reciprocate? Like they would open six bottles of wine for me. And I know that you know, do the math, it's well over $100 in wine. And so I, is there anything I can do? Can I, can I pay you for the wines? What, you know, what can I do to, 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 you know, to make you to be fair, and and they would say, No, you know, you're paying forward. And if you ever become a master sommelier, that's what I want is I want you to share the knowledge and experience that I shared with you with the next generation. And so that's, that's something I, I take very seriously. And for that reason, um, you know, I, I have a, a class for my staff. So we used to do a lot of heavy deductive tasting. 
I used to um, teach at the International Culinary Center. It, it was sort of the revamp of the French Culinary Institute as they added, you know, a, a West Coast campus and a campus in Italy. They rebranded. They were the culinary. Uh, they became the ICC, International Culinary Center. And so I was working with people who wanted a career in wine. So that's what I initially started our team with at Protégé. Um, it was a great pipeline for really dedicated restaurant professionals. Unfortunately, because of the cost of living in the West Coast and the lack of public transportation, the one the location in Soho was doing great and the one in Campbell was not, and they eventually shut it down. Um, but, you know, I had that level of, of uh, you know, team that they, they had that interest at Protégé when we first opened. So I was doing a lot of deductive tasting every week. We were, you know, really trying to prepare them for examinations. Unfortunately, once we lost that core group, the group that we have now doesn't quite have that level of knowledge and ambition. So now we're, you know, doing more introduction, you know, we just went through wine for dummies, you know, I had them read a chapter and we would get together and we would taste the wines highlighted in that chapter and that type of thing. But we're still dedicated to wine education for our team. It's just a little bit different level. And then when I can get away, um, I do try to participate in examinations just because there's a glut of people who need to be tested. You know, it, it's frustrating if you need to take your master sommelier examination and or your advanced level or whatever it is and you can't get the opportunity because they can't put together enough tests because they can't mm, they can't get enough masters to proctor them so we all do everything we can to be there it's just especially the advanced process is so long i can't necessarily be gone that long so i've been doing a lot more you know master theory or uh you know master you know, the, the final two, the tasting and the, and the service, which is a, a much longer process. But um, those, if it's on a Sunday and Monday, I can take another day or two, be away on a Tuesday or Wednesday and, and be a part of that process. How many uh, master sommeliers is there now? I think like in the 260s worldwide, I, in there somewhere, honestly, I, I'm not exactly sure. But I mean... You know, when, I don't. When you started, it was like 50, 50 master sommelier, right? No, I was the hundred and ninety first. You were the hundred and ninety first. I was the hundred ninety first in two thousand twelve, and now there are, I again, I think in the two sixties. Is it less less people in less people in Europe get it, or is it? Is so it... there there are two chapters. The original organization started in nineteen sixty nine in England. It was the European. Uh, but they didn't call it that. And then in the, I want to say mid eighties, I think uh, they started the American chapter and now they're very closely linked. Like at all our examinations, we have somebody from the European chapter and at our examinations, they have somebody from the American chapter. Okay. So it's, it's a much more closely linked organization than it ever was because we really want to make sure that the testing is consistent so they're constantly comparing notes and trying to refine the process so that whether you pass in the united states or in europe it's all the same yeah wow. yeah pretty cool yeah yeah all right i mean the truth is some of the best sommeliers uh you know have never taken a, a test that's you know one of the sommeliers that, and, and Nicola brought him to the restaurant that I've learned the most from was Gregory Castells. Yeah. I mean, in terms of, you know, seeing sommeliers on the floor and I mean, to me, he was the slickest I've ever seen still to this day, you know, and he was not in the program, you know, but he had worked in a lot of great restaurants. He, he dedicated, him, dedicated himself to wine at a very early age. And he we went to a school for it. Yeah. Yeah, he went to school for it. You know, he tells you stories about being in like Jean-Louis Chave or Alain Greo's house as a teenager decanting, you know, Hermitage. It's, <laughs> but but his depth of knowledge in France, I used to follow him around, that poor guy like a puppy, and just ask him questions all day, you know, because he was so knowledgeable. And that's honestly, that was one of the real beneficial, 
special times of my, you know, of my learning was just the period that I got to work with him and watch him on the floor and, and just pick his brain because he was amazing. Yeah, he was one of the best. You brought him in and, and that was, it, it was so beneficial for me. I, I so appreciate that opportunity. Uh, he was a great somebody. He was, um, you, have you ever met uh, Stéphane Lacroix? Yes, yeah, a couple of times. Yeah, was one of yeah they were very close. Yeah. I never had the opportunity. I know he was working in the city. Was it at the Ritz? Yeah, it was at the Ritz, yeah. Yeah, he was working in the city, and I, I, I always wanted to get there and see him in action, and I never did. But uh, I met him a couple of times, and he, much like Gregory, was yeah. just very personable and very suave, you know? Him and I, it was interesting because we find ourselves in the United States after many years, but him and I worked in two restaurants in France at the same time when he was a commis sommelier. Wow. He was like the little guy carrying the bottle from the wine cellar to the dining room. Oh, what restaurant was that? Was that uh, Le Moulin de Mougin okay. in uh, Roger Verger and Louis XV for Alain Ducasse. Okay, wow. And so both restaurants, we worked together. And then we lost contact and we found ourselves in 2000, 2000, we met again in Ritz, at the Ritz-Carlton in San Francisco. Okay. And then you worked together in Philadelphia, right? No. Oh, no, no. Okay. No, we never worked in the United States after together. Okay. Okay. Huh. Are you, are you talking about uh, Philip Soria? Uh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah, that well, he guy, worked at Petrus for a while, right? In London. That's, that's Gregory Castell. Yeah. Oh, a, oh, you're talking about, oh, okay, I'm sorry. Ah. Gregory, Gregory we, we contacted uh, because he came to work at Le Vecfin. Okay. So, so you never worked with him in France? No, never, no, no. Stéphane, yes. But Gregory, we met uh, via, he's looking for a job in the United States. Then I he got sponsored to come to Le Vecfin. Uh-huh. And we got him to come to uh, the French Laundry. Uh-huh. Yeah. That was a good move on our part. Yeah, <laughs> like that to get to get the pace going. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, like I said, I, I benefited from that greatly. Tell us a little bit about. I know we're gonna end, come to an end, but tell us a little bit about uh, Protégé and uh, what's going on there. Well, um, I mean, we made it through the pandemic, and uh, like I said, we're we're fully staffed right now for the first time in in quite a while, and. Um, you know, just every day, just trying to make it better, you know, that that's the goal. I learned at the French Laundry, complacency is the worst thing. And, and so we're always just looking at it from another angle and trying to see what we can do. You know, it's, it's always a, a constant evolution. It never stays the same. Um, you know, for, for years, people have been saying, well, when are you going to do something else? And we're finally at that point, as I mentioned earlier, um, we had some business owners contact us, um, and, and say that they want to sell their wine bar. And, uh, we had been thinking about doing a cocktail bar for, for quite a while. And, um, part of the reason, well, we love cocktails and, and, uh, it's amazing what bartending has become because I actually used to bartend back in the I guess late 80s all the way through wow my goodness up up until I guess about the late 90s is when I kind of transitioned from bartending to working in restaurants and and managing and uh, it's come so far there's so many tools that they use you know um they they cryovac a lot. They they use um, centrifuges to clarify. They're using rotovaps and freeze dryers, and it's just gotten so technical. And there's it's such a vast world, and so we've been inspired by some incredible cocktail bars in Tokyo, Chicago, Los Angeles, New York City, and so uh, we really kind of want to bring that level of execution to Palo Alto. So we're going to do a little cocktail bar. It's just the place is about 1200 square feet. Um, and we're just going to see what we can do. So we've 
finally signed um, an asset purchase agreement. We're just finalizing a business plan, which is what I was <laughs> working on now in pro forma till three o'clock in the morning. Um, and then we got to fund that thing. And that's, I mean, I don't know how you guys did it at Nicola's Eatery, but that's the hardest thing I ever did. I say all the time, if I had to start the process of becoming a master sommelier or funding protege again, I'd really have to think about it because that was so hard, you know, as a person who never asked for a nickel in his life. And suddenly you're, you're trying to convince people that you're a good investment, you know, and I I don't know how many times I heard, do you know that 80% of restaurants go out of business in the first year and 80% of the 20 that make it through year one go out of business in year two? I'm like, you don't say. <laughs> yeah, we, we went through, we go through this thing like that too when we had the opportunity that didn't work out. And uh-huh. I say it's funny because you're looking for a certain amount of money and people are like, oh, that's nothing. That's nothing. Yeah. That's little, you know, because here in, in our area, here, people are looking for investment of, 25 million, 30 million, you know. Oh my gosh. You're yeah. looking for some restaurants. Like we need 500K. And like, <laughs> <laughs> and like it's, so, it's so small, it's so small, yeah, but you know, it's not easy to raise. Nothing is easy. Right. No, no, it's not. I mean, it's funny because our landlord, our current landlord, but the, you know, prospective landlord at that time, uh, I, I approached him and he's like, well, do you have a million dollars in escrow? And I'm like, we haven't even started raising funds. He's like, well, talk to me when you have a million dollars in escrow. And so, you know, I talked to the broker and they're like, well, you, if you have some key investors, just have them each put $250,000 in there. And, and, and I'm like, I'm talking to them. They're like $250,000 to open a restaurant. Like they, that was a lot of money. And so one of them said to me, I, I, I met him at a Starbucks in Burlingame and he goes, I could raise $250,000 for you right now in this Starbucks, $50,000 at a time. You know, so his point was, you're asking for too much money, break it down to 50. And he he goes, I could get five people to put in 50, but I can't get anybody to put in 250. And so, you know, go back, rewrite the PPM for $50,000 units. And suddenly we started getting some momentum. So, yeah, it's it's a learning process. You know, the problem is it's an expensive learning process because every time you make a change, you have to change the PPM. So you have to get an attorney to to do that and it's hundreds of dollars an hour so it's an expensive education right the whole thing yeah 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 <laughs> yeah people have no idea you know you're you're trying to make it look easy during service but like they have no idea what happens under the surface that duck is paddling like crazy trying to keep his head above water right well that's what it's like people they come in and say oh you guys are so lucky you're always busy <laughs> and like, yeah. if you knew if you knew i'm always busy what it is to build that yeah that business you know well, you know winter time in malibu on uh, a tuesday night yeah and it's raining you don't have that right, right it's not busy yeah i can never get a table well, yeah, 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 yeah. tuesday at five o'clock <laughs> we we did like we all, we closed on a weekday for lunch because there was no need for it. Uh-huh. And but we had this lady; she had a, an event that we honored to do for her. And so we, one Wednesday, we decided to stay open for lunch, right? Uh-huh. And obviously, there were a party of six or eight, and we ended up to do like sixty cover for lunch. Wow! And so, we have thirty-five seats. Yeah, so, yeah. You know, like, so she's like, yeah. so the lady come back. She's like. Hey, so much for being close for lunch. I'm yeah, like, yeah. She's like, you should reopen for lunch. And we're like, are you serious? Yeah. Like, if you think this yeah. is happened like that all the time, no. no. But, but the perception was like, you guys are always yeah. busy. Right. Sure. Like, <laughs> you know, like you said, you guys close off sections. Like we have a rooftop, we have a rooftop bar that we've decided to close for the winter because. Ah, I didn't even know that. Okay. Yeah, that's new. It, it opened, uh, it opened earlier this year. Okay. And uh, it actually opened on Father's Day when we had 150 covers. And my dad was like, hey, guys, open the roof. <laughs> and we're like, oh, okay, great. Yeah. So uh, Good idea, dad. <laughs> uh, great. Yeah, I got it. On you it. Worked, you on worked. It. Yeah, it worked out. It worked out so good. Um, so anyway, <laughs> we, decided to, <laughs> we decided to close that for the winter because, you know, you can't justify putting a team up there to do the job when maybe you're not getting as many people coming through in that time. So uh, of course, as soon as we closed it, everyone's like, "Hey, can we sit on the roof?" Yeah. <laughs> you know, exactly. 
Yeah, your dad's a little bit of a gunslinger, and and I love that about him because it, it inspires confidence in the team. We we did this uh, event for uh, Chateau Aubryon in Los Angeles at Viviana, and we walk in there. And do you remember when you and me they they sent me this key with with uh, they said there's going to be a safe with all this wine, and they they mail me this key right, and I'm looking at this key. I'm like, wow, this is pretty dramatic, right? <laughs> You get there, there's this giant safe with chains wrapped around it. It looked like a cartoon. This thing had these thick chains wrapped around it, like diagonally. And then there was one lock in the middle, and I had the key. <laughs> and me and your father and uh, Amali was there, right? And we're like, you have to be kidding me, right? And we opened this thing, and there's like magnums of stuff from back to the 40s and 50s and 70s it was just incredible but we're wearing white gloves and we're doing a service unlike any service we ever did i mean we did our dance every day at protege but these were like these long tables and it was just a completely foreign service to us you know but you know your father's like we're here boys we're gonna you know and and it just it just gave us the confidence to be like okay we're you know we got this you know because it was it was a little intimidating you know we there's like the prince of luxembourg and yeah. so you know many people at the same time yeah exactly like we had to serve i don't know how many people like dozens of people all at the same time all the food went down you pick up two giant cloches with your white gloves it was surreal, but but again, like for a lot of us, especially the younger teammates, they were like, "What are the, what are we doing here?" It was intimidating, and your dad's like, "We got this," <laughs> and it just gave everybody the confidence, to just like be yourself and make it happen, you know. Oh yeah, he's uh, that's definitely gunslinger is probably the best. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm proud of it that way, but no it, fear, no fear. I gotta look at the description. Yeah. <laughs> And Denise, thank you so much for your time. And it was a pleasure. It's really great to reconnect. Exactly. With you know, we always congratulations that, uh, on the podcast. Where can I find it? I send you the copy when he's uh, when he goes live. It's on Spotify, okay. Apple, and Google Podcast. That's what I need to know. Awesome. It's Very called cool. it's called We Chef. We Chef. That's a brilliant name. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Thanks, guys. It's so hey. nice to see you, Lucas. Yeah, congratulations. Nice to you. Take care. Thank Bye. you, Nicole. Take care. Bye. Bye.